0: Good afternoon, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, your lunch. I have a real pleasure now uh, to introduce uh, Patrick Byrne. Patrick is the chairman and CEO of Overstock.com, which he founded in 1999. In 2010, Forbes named Overstock the ninth best company to work for in the country, and Patrick the CEO with the highest employee approval rating, which is impressive to me having had a lot of employees. In 2011, Patrick received the Ernst & Young National Entrepreneur of the Year Award. In 2013, Overstock had revenue of $1.3 billion and net income of $88 million. Sounds like a good guy to lend some money to. In 2001, uh, Patrick began World Stock Fair Trade and Overstock.com division selling handcraft products from artisans in developing nations. The department distinguishes itself by by returning over 60% of the sales price to artists and suppliers to date $100 million has been paid. In addition, all world stock net profits are donated to fund philanthropic projects in several countries, such as 26 self-sustaining schools. Uh, Patrick is a classical liberal, uh, believes that our nation's success depends on a sound educational system and a healthy capital market. Since Milton Friedman's passing, uh, Patrick has served as chairman of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, which is an organization leading the national debate for school vouchers, which I think is very important work. Towards the goal of clean capital markets in 2004, Byrne, as a citizen journalist, began a vigorous campaign against abusive Wall Street practices. His website, Deep Capture, has received much recognition as a uh, Weblog award, best business blog, business punis, best business investigative journalist, and Mark's top site on corruption in the USA. Uh, Patrick holds a BA degree in philosophy and Asian Studies from uh, Dartmouth College, an MPhil in philosophy from uh, Cambridge University as a Marshall Scholar, and a PhD in philosophy from Stanford University. Now that's very impressive, particularly for a guy running a business. <laughs> uh, he's taught at the university level and is a frequent guest uh, lecturer discussing interstate internet commerce, capital markets, Wall Street practices, education leadership, and ethics, and we're really proud to have Patrick here. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Thank you, you. you, sir. Thank you for the overly generous introduction. Much sound and fury signifying nothing, I promise you. Uh, What an honor it is to speak with you today. I'm going to start a timer here, excuse me. I plan on speaking for about 30 minutes and then taking questions for 15-ish. So, who am I? Setting all that aside, you may have read, uh, if you read Wired Magazine, there was an article earlier this year, Meet Patrick Byrne, Bitcoin Messiah, CEO of Overstock, Scourge of Wall Street. I'm assured there's, there's three items to which I'll call attention. I'm the Messiah of nothing. I'm a, I'm a fellow traveler. And Bitcoin, I'm really not really, my commitment isn't to Bitcoin, it's to the crypto revolution and the crypto technology, which I'll be discussing. The part they did get right was the scourge of Wall Street and i'm not going not going to explain too much about this you know that's so refreshing because I can tell you ten years ago if I had if twenty years ago if somebody criticized Wall Street especially among a crowd such as I get the sense most of us are here yeah, what, what are you some communist or something it's finally happened that people are getting that that Just because you're sort of pro-free market doesn't mean we have to be pro-Wall Street because there are some things going wrong with it. In fact, I'll mention that Milton Friedman, I I had a very nasty fight in Wall Street about 10 years ago, which will play some part of this discussion. And I, at some point, I went to my friend and teacher, Milton Friedman, and said, you know, Dr. Friedman, I understand if this isn't your cup of tea. It's gotten very nasty. I know I'm conducting myself. I'm up against a bunch of pretty tough guys. I know I'm being a bit of an Irish hothead out there in the press, and I would understand fully if you say you want to disassociate yourself from me, it won't, won't bother me at all. And he thought for a few seconds, which was an unusual length of time for Milton Friedman to have to think about everything. And he thought, and he, said, he finally said, you know, Pat, maybe what our side's been missing is an Irish hothead. <laughs> so you got one here so uh, i 'm going to just explain very briefly what that fight was about because it 's very directly related to what i 'll be talking about here, and that fight uh, I had grown up around Wall Street. I had worked on it in the early '90s, and I got in, but I was gone for ten years when I went back in 2000, when I went back and we went public in two thousand and two, as a public company CEO you 're out there in the mix you 're out there with hedge funds and prime brokers and, and uh, regulators and such and i quickly started to smell skunk and by and i don't mean to I, I mean i don't mean to claim any great prescience i was asked to take part in some criminal schemes so it wasn't too hard to figure out there were some criminal schemes and i started sort of swimming around in it trying to figure it all out and and around 2004 2005 i just went public with a set of very bold claims. And I mean, I went very public that there was a there was a, a ring, a constellation of some crooked hedge funds focused on Stephen Cohen uh, and some networks of funds close to him. They were involved in insider trading using expert network systems. They And in addition, they had found ways to manipulate the market, uh, which I know that a lot of people at the time here thought couldn't be done. They had found ways to rig the market That the SEC that we thought was protecting us from depredations of these kinds of of criminals on Wall Street was actually asleep at at the switch, if not actually colluding with them. That the particular issues I was focusing on, which dealt with a settlement system, that organized crime was involved. And everywhere you went into this one little corner of Wall Street, you found people with organized crime uh, connections, and that maybe even some foreign powers hostile to the United States were sort of hand in glove with those organized criminals, and that they had not found not only ways to manipulate the market, but they were creating a latent derivative risk in the market that nobody understood, but they could crash the system. So uh, I came, went forward with these claims, and this was the general response of the press to them. New York Post ran a photo of UFOs coming out of my head. Of course, I assume we all understand the New York Post is for people to move their lips when they read Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> I'm sorry? You're oh, talking so fast, the words Okay, I'm sorry. The acoustics up here, I'm very loud. I didn't know. I, can you hear me okay in the back? Okay. So I'm going to... Uh, start by a quick refresher course on the efficient market hypothesis and because I'll be, uh, well, efficient market hypothesis, which I'm sure most people here at least know, is that at any given time a security has an intrinsic value that is a reflection of a, it's the present cash, it's the, the future cash flows of an instrument discounted back to the present at an appropriate interest rate. And at any given time, that the price of a security could bounce around. And But if you had, say, one regulatory regime A, and under that regulatory regime A, you had that much bouncing, that much noise in the system. And under regulatory regime B, you had the amount represented in the green area. You could sum the yellow area, and you could sum the green area. And since the green area is less than the yellow area, it's more efficient and then that regulatory regime is to be preferred that's the essence of efficient market hypothesis now just because we tend to be free market people doesn't mean we should be overly committed to this and I'm going to show you what I that there are other uh, are areas where this breaks down and in particular if this is true you can't manipulate a market because all the price of a security is is a bet and and just as you couldn't go to you know you could go to a horse track and be in the betting office and people could play all kinds of bet games with the betting and do all kinds of things but none of that affects the underlying horse race. If you belong if you believe in this paradigm, you're going to think well no amount of the actual stuff going on in the betting affects the underlying uh, companies and such. I became uh, well I became. I'm going to give you the, remember that scene in the Matrix where Neo says, I can give you the red pill or the blue pill. You take the blue pill, go home, Uh, no, uh, the older guy, Morpheus, says to him, you take the blue pill, go home, believe anything you want to believe, you take the red pill, I'll show you how far the rabbit hole goes. So here's a red pill. There was a crooked law firm called Milberg Weiss that in 2006, in 2006 the DOJ indicted. And Melvin Weiss and Bill Iraq went to prison, it blew up, one of the ten largest law law firms in America melted down and was gone. These guys were the originators of the class action strike suits, plaintiff uh, shareholder strike suits. Somebody's stock went down a little bit and they would file a class action suit against the company. But in the DOJ indictment, there's a very interesting sentence. The paid plaintiffs, so they had shill plaintiffs, is what it turns out. Bill O'Rourke and Melvin Weiss had paid plaintiffs that were acting as shills for them to file their lawsuits. And in the DOJ indictment, they say the paid plaintiffs purchased the securities at issue anticipating the securities would decline in value in order to position themselves to be named plaintiffs in security fraud class actions and to get kickbacks. There's something very strange about that sentence. Anticipating the securities would decline in value. How'd they know? How'd they know? Because they they weren't just buying a share of stock in every company. Turns out their shill planners were going out in a few weeks or a month ahead of time, buying shares in companies that then a month later would crack. How'd they know? If the efficient market hype, I mean, are these guys Warren Buffett? Do they know? Are they great stock pickers? How'd they know which stocks a month ahead of time were about to crack? You couldn't do that if the efficient market hypothesis is correct. So now I am going to go into, so I I promised to talk on crypto finance and the liberal operating system. Uh, So I am going to switch gears for a minute and talk about the history of liberalism. I know most people here probably know maybe all of it or certainly most of you here know some of this. But I want to spend a few minutes talking about liberalism itself in the context of there's two books that invite us to look at uh, civilization itself as an operating system. One is a very famous in the sci-fi community, a book called *Snow Crash*. It's kind of the kind of the Bible of the anarcho-syndicalist movement, and it or anarcho-capitalist movement. And it imagines a world of a distributed republic after the crash, where these different cities are just run by different corporations, like Domino, Pizza, and stuff, and every everyone promulgates their own constitution. And then people, you know, by their with their feet, they choose where what constitution they accept. Uh, uh, so it invites us to really look at history in a very strange way as it's like a Petri dish that Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Confucianism, just think of these as operating systems. And history is just a Petri dish that where they are competing, we don't have any specific attachment to Macintosh versus PC versus Unix or something, but we just, you know, nobody blows each other up over that. We just argue about what are the different virtues of each operating system. And that these different civilizations are really just operating systems that can be looked at the same way. Another book by Francis Fukuyama, who we know is sort of the last Hegelian. the Uh, an intellectual from the 90s, is out at Hoover now. He wrote a book called Trust after writing The The End of History, which was his big famous book. He wrote a book called Trust, which compared the operating systems, so to speak, of low-trust family-based societies, such as China, Taiwan, and Italy, where businesses generally, historically, they don't get bigger than than a large family can manage, versus... High-trust institution-based societies, like the U.S., Germany, and Japan, and his argument was that high-trust institution-based societies are better because uh, there's more; they can achieve economies of scale. They're business enterprises they're not confined to, you're not confined to just in the size of an organization which can be run by a family where everybody trusts each other but that we have these great central institutions that we can trust and because of that we can develop larger enterprises and economies of scale. And I'll just note that in my experience intellectuals tend to value economies of scale far higher than they should. They forget there are diseconomies of scale. There was a Soviet exercise in making cars where they thought, they looked at Detroit and they said, well, we can do better than that. They built some factory that was about 20 square miles. And they thought, well, <laughs> this has got to be better because we have all these economies of scale. And they produced the Trabalt or whatever their, the Soviet cars were. So, But Fukuyama's argument is that, our, that it is superior to have large central institutions that we can all buy into. So uh, with that in mind... Let's talk about authoritarian and liberalism. Authoritarian versus liberalism. I had an interesting experience in 2004. I was in Afghanistan looking for suppliers for this enterprise called Worldstock, which is an artisan group within Overstock. And I was talking with a woman through a female translator out in some village uh, west of Kabul. They were Khazars, I think, where they were Shia. And And in describing their life, I learned that women don't walk, you wouldn't walk from your home to the village center alone because you might be stolen. And I said to the translator, you mean kidnapped? And she says, no, no, no. If they take a man, that we have a word for that that means kidnapped, but the word we use if a woman is taken is the same word you would use if a sheep was taken or a goat was taken. And you know, she explained to me that in their culture... A woman never exists as an independent agent. She's got to be owned by somebody. She's owned by her father. She's owned by her husband if she gets married. If she doesn't have either of them, she's owned by her brother. But there's no sense of an individual, a female, who owns herself. And it seemed to me a good way to understand how I think most of mankind has lived for all of history. We were, in a sense, if not owned in a serfdom kind of way. the History has been... a a story where generally powerful agents, I think of, or uh, I'm going to skip this slide It's just to save time, where powerful agents uh, say, like Machiavelli, he speaks of freedom, whenever those states have been accustomed to live under their own laws and in freedom and such and such, you got to be careful when the word freedom is used up until about 500 years ago, it means something different than we mean. What Machiavelli meant by freedom was a state whose prince was not a vassal, a city whose prince is not a vassal to some other prince or some other lord somewhere. But it's just taken for granted, of course, the inhabitants of the city are all instruments for the prince himself to use. It's the the ends of the prince, the ends of the political authority are what matter. And the rest of us, we're just like that woman in Afghanistan. We're We're the means for them to achieve their ends. 500 years ago, so that's the basic operating system that has dominated history. About 500 years ago, well, I'd actually start, I can think of two uh, precursors. The book of Daniel, there's this wonderful line, of course, where Nebuchadnezzar brings Daniel in and Daniel says, You've been reads the writing on the wall and says, You've been judged in the balance and found wanting. Well, that's really where Western history begins. The idea that political authority is not. It's, until then, it always had—it was always divine. It was always an expression or manifestation of divinity. But with Book of Daniel, it becomes there is some external standard within which we can judge political authority. And I'll just mention the great lesson to me of Athens democracy, which lasted about 300 years. They had a con- 290 years. They co- they had all, a number of different constitutions. The one that, about how they chose their leaders and. They found that if it was too direct, if democracy is too direct, you end up getting mob rule, which degenerates to oligarchy. And if you get indirect democracy with senators, that degenerates to aristocracy and uh, oligarchy, which eventually gives you a tyrant. And the system that worked the best was sortition. The most stable period in Athenian history was when they chose legislators at random. And because it breaks up the desi- breaks up the payback, the return on rent seeking, on trying to capture and lobby. But the real history, and I'm going to move quickly, I've talked about this in other places if you want more detail. Really, our history as liberals starts in Spain. And in particular, a region in Spain called the Netherlands. And we Americans often forget that Europe was once, 500 years ago, it was a sea of Spain with an island of France in it. The Netherlands, the low countries up north, were just part of Spain. And these ideas started emerging there, a social contract uh, that was a, bunch of, a bunch of guys moved to the swamps and had to work together to drain the swamps and build windshields and you know, windscreens and they had to come together and form contracts. And how are we going to divvy up the, uh, the work and the benefits of our work together and such? Out of that came Constitutional Federation, the merchants and bourgeoisie and their values. Uh, Erasmus, the great Catholic theologian, first first person to write about tolerance of other people. People didn't understand at the time that you could have Jews and Christians and even Muslims living together. And it it didn't violate some natural. You could all live together and just trade through consent. Uh, The great Jewish uh, philosopher Spinoza, who defined the modern view of the self, as the self, as an agent whose consent matters, that it isn't just that our consent matters, that that we are agents capable of consent, that we're not just instruments of the prince. Windmills, the Marxists would say that the creation of windmills gave them huge amounts of abundant cheap energy, which they could use to make sawmills and make ships, and they conquered the world. Uh, A group of English Protestant uh, but, uh, separatists, they were called. They wanted to separate from the Church of England. Unlike the Puritans, who wanted to reunite someday, they they left London, they left England, and they went to Holland and Rotterdam and Amsterdam, and they lived there for 20 years. And they they learned a lot about this this Dutch way of vision of the world, their paradigm. They sailed, and they actually gave up because they decided that Amsterdam was having a pernicious, the licentious ways of Amsterdam were corrupting their young and they sailed to the United States where we know them as the pilgrims. And lastly, John Locke, to whom I assume we all understand, our founding fathers read John Locke extensively. He was the most influential philosopher on our founding fathers. John Locke sat out the glorious revolution and went to Amsterdam for three years and learned all of this. And on the other side, the University of Salamanca, and there's a great economist named Jesus Huerta de Soto. I don't know if he's ever spoken here, but he's a, he, he's a student of this branch of things. And it's amazing, 400, 500 years ago, a group of tomastic Jesuits and Dominicans figured out things like the subjectivist theory of value, which we generally credit to Marshall and the Cambridge School, was actually figured out 400 years earlier. Uh, the impossibility of socialist calculation, there's these paragraphs from four or five hundred years ago in the work of these scholastic philosophers that you know, read just like our debates from the last century about the impossibility of socialist calculation, the quantity theory of money. The Spanish, of course, had this great influx of gold, hyperinflation, which, were inflation, which kind of ruined them. They realized that the, their certificates of deposit, which were part of that story, were the equivalent of demand deposits, which is to say fractional reserve banking, and they realized that both led to inflation. Uh, the value of entrepreneurs and moving society forward, recognizing opportunity by apprehending and seizing those opportunities that's what gave our society the motive, its motive force, and hence the necessity of good property and contract. There was a peace movement within the Scholastic. In the height, of the, uh, the height of the Spanish Empire, there was actually a peace movement, just much like our own. Uh, interestingly enough, these ideas moved to the eastern, they bounced through Italy, moved to the eastern edge of the Spanish Empire. Eastern edge, the eastern reign of Spain, the eastern realm, the Österreich, or Austria, Where they went into hibernation for 250 years and then they came out at 140 years ago as what we know as the Austrian School of Economics is actually where it all started. So I put this as and then the expression of all of this to me is the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, not to say we've kept it intact, but the U.S. Constitution is really it's intellectual genetic material is in my view these two. Uh, these two areas, these two schools of thought. On the other side, you have, and here I I will go quickly, Rousseau, and to me Rousseau is the great enemy of mankind. He made this philosophical mistake. Uh, It's in the social contract. Each of us puts his person and all his power in command of the supreme direction of the general will that the sovereign needs to give no guarantee to its subjects, And thus the dominant will of the prince is nothing but the general will, the volonté générale, of the people, that the the will of the people isn't found through voting or people saying what they think their will is. It's that there's some Robespierre over us who can interpret for us what what our collective purpose is. And whoever refuses to obey that general will shall be compelled to do so. This means nothing less than he shall be forced to be free." This is like a virus that got inserted into our operating system. It's a virus, and it has changed history. I'll mention Voltaire, whom I adore. read this, wrote a letter to Rousseau that said, Dear Monsieur Rousseau, I've received, sir, your new new book, Against the Human Race, and thank you for it. One longs in reading it to walk on all fours. (laughs) But that intellectual error, has had a monumental effect on history. I won't go through this whole chain. I think there was once a talk here I heard 20 or 30 years ago where a wonderful, I think it may have been Michael Tanner or somebody, did a wonderful talk about how that error flowed through history to Kant, who we think of as a liberal, but who was actually, and of course I'm using the word liberal in the correct sense of what a liberal is, Uh, uh, not sort of the American sense in which it's used now, somebody who believes in limited government. Uh, through Kant, who thought that as long as a state had an executive separated from the legislature that 's all you needed for freedom, but for you didn 't have to constrain it the state didn 't have to be constrained because it would be the state is an expression of reason, and if you constrain the state, you're constraining reason and all this Kantian mysticism kind of stuff. Hegel, Marx, the basic this basic line of thought says, look, that, that Lockean idea of freedom being life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness, as Locke put it, uh, and slightly edited, as Jefferson put it, that that is wrong, that real freedom is getting on my train. I have some train to get on, and real freedom... Is get on this train. And that's real freedom, not that silly idea of you just running around doing what you want. But this other, you know, getting on. And they each had their own train to define. Marx, for him, his train his train is the evolution of history, that you know, class struggle and the evolution of the proletariat. Nietzsche, who dismissed, he dismissed, uh, well, he dismissed. Uh, what do you say? He said only, a, only an Englishman cares about happiness. And with that, he dismissed our whole tradition. That life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness, that's all just sort of what silly people do. That real, real freedom is found in this other process. For Lenin, it was you know, was the submission to the pro, the, re, uh, the vanguard of the proletariat, Hitler. Uh, over all the concentration camps, the Nazi motto was Arbeit mach frei, work makes you free. It's always the same monumental error that freedom is not, as Locke defined it, it's submission to something else, and then I'm going to be very—I'm going to tell you what that other thing is. That's how they take over. That's the virus. Uh, Voltaire said of this: "People who believe in absurdities will eventually commit atrocities." Uh, so now let me move back to the—I'll skip this. Senator Rick Santorum just said something like this. So it's not a left-right thing. People say it on the right too. It's people make this. It's the key error to look for. The insertion point for this virus into our operating system is centralized institutions. Centralized institutions. That is why Fukuyama is incorrect, in my view, because he's left out of his mental model how centralized institutions are prone to regulatory capture, that that's the great vulnerability. And in fact, we all know what right Stigler Friedman's friend came up with this theory in 1972 that we set up regulators to protect us from society, but they often get captured, to protect us from industries, but they get captured by those industries. Uh, There's even a theory called deep capture, which is that they don't just capture the regulators, they capture the the politicians who oversee them, scholars, journalists, they they all get captured. And I have a website called deep capture, which is the one that John Allison mentioned that explores this in our country and has won a lot of awards for it. Two centralized institutions that I believe have been captured and fortunately get undermined by crypto are central banking, which other people here have been speaking about at length, and central counterparty clearing. And this is an enterprise most people have never heard of called the DTCC. It's, a, it's an enterprise on Wall Street. It's the back office of all of Wall Street. Why it's important is, well, I'll show you. On October 23, 2008, when the universe was melting down, Greenspan testified before Congress. He said, There are additional regulatory changes that this breakdown of the central pillar of competitive markets requires in order to return to stability, particularly in the areas of fraud, settlement, and securitization. Fraud, that's Bernie Madoff. Securitization, that's mortgage-backed securities. What's the settlement thing he discussed? So what is settlement? Settlement sounds really boring, but you've got to understand it. Uh, if, when, we, you know, when you watch a movie, you, don't think, you know that there mm. are grips and gaffers and lighting people, but you don't think about them. When you buy stock and sell stock, you know that there's some plumbing underneath the financial system, but you don't, you're not really aware of how it works. So think of an investor buying, buying from a hedge fund, Gordon Gecko, and the investor you know, pays money and gets stock, and you think it's that simple. But in reality, of course, they're both represented by brokers, and the money and stock trades hands between them. But in reality, all the broker-dealers in America are plumbed into this organization called the DTCC, tra- and when people are trading on the periphery, the money and stock flows through it. But in reality, it's not even that simple. In reality, the money in stock just bounces around within accounts at the DTCC. Now, this is owned by the very people who benefit from it doing, it's from it allowing slop. There's slop in this system. And I'll show you what I mean. Who who here, raise your hand if you own stock, any stock in any publicly traded company. Sorry to say, everyone with their hand up is incorrect. None of you own any stock. What there is, And incidentally, these nodes at the exterior can themselves be hubs of other hub and spokes. So there may be another broker-dealer between you. All the stock in America is owned by a company you've never heard of. And I mean this literally. It's called CD and Company. And the DTCC has a contractual relationship with it. And your broker has, and the first ring of brokers has contractual relationships with it, and then the next ring of brokers with them. And so you have, you think you own, you have property rights. You have no property rights if you read that fine print in, on your brokerage contract. All the property rights are held by one company, and there's a daisy chain of, of contractual rights separating you from them. On most days, that won't make a difference. On most days, this system, and this system is, as I said, it's owned by Goldman, J.P. Morgan, and the big banks. And it it didn't, it just started 40 years ago. And it started 40 years ago because there was was a paperwork crisis on Wall Street in the late 60s where when people traded stock at the brokerages, there were guys running around with burlap sacks of stock certificates and, and doing all that, and they got behind. And they actually had to, Wall Street went that four days a week and four hours a day trading for several years to give people time to catch up. And they adopted they adopted this new system in 1973. And it's quite different than you think it is. Uh, and so there's, so. Uh, on, if, if, on most days it won't make a difference. But there are times it can make a difference. Here's an alternate paradigm. More of you will recognize. Uh, price, quantity, supply, demand, if someone's able to show up and see that system I just described has fault tolerance and it's possible to sell non-existent stock in it and thereby create excess supply that shifts the supply supply curve to the right, which of course can manipulate a price, and if you can do it enough, with enough stock, you can actually crack a company, especially financial companies are prone to this. The SEC for years said this wasn't happening, and then they adopted a regulation about ten years ago where they, they started to do something about it, and they, but they said they forgave all of it. They went from saying it isn't going on to saying we have to forgive, we have to grandfather all that's in the system because the commission was concerned about creating volatility where there were large pre-existing open positions which a year previously they had been insisting didn't exist. But when public pressure made them finally do something about it, they had to forgive all of this stuff that they had been saying had been going on. They had to forgive it because they were afraid it would crack the system if they did something about it. In fact, in my dealings with Washington, and uh, my dealings with Washington, I got reminded of a Bertrand Russell story about he was once in, I think, India, talking to um lecturing on Einstein's relativity theory. And the story is somebody stood up in the back and said, Professor Russell, you don't understand. It's not—that's not true. The uh, this was a Hindu cosmology professor said, "The universe rides on the back of a turtle." And Russell said, "Well, what's the turtle ride on?" And the guy said, "The back of another turtle." And Russell said, "Well, what's that turtle ride on?" The guy said, "I'm sorry, professor. It's turtles all the way down." Well, I started—I've started bringing this information, and I mean real hard data and economists with it, and people who were taking part to the NASD, FINRA, the SEC, the U.S. Senate, New York Press, and what I discovered was it was turtles all the way down. (laughs) The whole, there was nothing there there to stand on. So, where does that, and it's not just in stocks. For example, when the the mortgage-backed security crisis happened, One economist wrote, the real fundamental problem lay in the multiple sales of mortgages through collateralized mortgage obligations. The result of two experts believe that for every dollar of mortgage, the investments fell as much as $15 behind in the CMOs. That's because more of these CMOs were being sold than there were actually underlying mortgages. Uh, The Wall Street Journal just ran something about this happening the commodities market in China some people believe it's happening in the whole gold and silver rehypothecation scandal if you tune into that thing, that there's far more gold people who think they own gold than there's actual underlying gold the uh, the the whole shadow banking system runs on the rehypothecation of U.S. Treasury instruments they're rehypothecated two to three times on average which means that for every actual U.S. Treasury instrument There are three to four people or pension funds or something who think they own it. And again, most days that won't make a difference. But the common denominator of all this is that we laugh at the Soviet Union for trying to run a society without property rights. And yet in our society, we've taken property rights and sliced and diced and hypothecated and rehypothecated and the systems What I started tuning into ten years ago where the systems are losing track of who owns what the regulators are finally starting to catch on to this I'm just going to skip ahead if you want to read more about this there's deep capture I did a YouTube video here a year ago on economic warfare as an instrument of transnational organized crime Barack Obama, President Obama in 2011, signed an executive order that basically transnational criminal organizations threaten our international political or financial systems, extraordinary threat to the U.S. and so on and so forth. He might as well have just said, with this deep capture was right. This point we've been making for years, that what you think of as property rights, thick property rights you don't have, the systems that keep track of the property rights have turned into these long daisy chains, and people don't... You don't own what you think you do. And the the simplest solution, so in summary, and I've got just a few slides left, in summary, the Wall Street, the problem, their, their centralized settlement, high frequency trading and a regulatory environment, the, that the centralized settlement is easy to manipulate because it's centralized. High frequency trading leads to front running as this wonderful book Flash, Flash Boys just described. The regulatory environment has been captured by the people it's supposed to go after. I'll steal a line here from P.J. O'Rourke, who said of the Department of Agriculture, the best thing to do would be to drag it behind the barn and kill it with an axe. The best thing to do would be to take Wall Street behind a barn and kill it with an axe. <laughs> we, we To take the current Wall Street institutions. They weren't chiseled on stone. They didn't come down from the gods. They were created 40 years ago, and we took a wrong course. The solution would be blockchain trading. The virtues of a blockchain would be its peer-to-peer settlement that can't be manipulated, front-running. There's no front-running. It's egalitarian and it's consensus-based and stateless. So these these deep problems with our current financial system uh, would be taken care of, and it would look it would be a peer-to-peer open ledger settlement system. Uh, I'm working on this intensely. This is what I'm actually doing on the East Coast, and I hope to be introducing this in the coming year. So, with that, I'm against Ghostbusters. I'm against centralized institutions because they can be captured, primarily because they can be captured and I'd love to take any questions in our last 10 minutes. Thank you. Sir, oh sorry. Is there going to be some centralized institution that determines the order? So in this case. If you say it to me, I'll repeat it back using this mic. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, so in this case of the stock or in the case of uh, overstock uh, the short short sellers uh, controversy. Um, don't I mean obviously dividends get paid by companies and they get paid through presumably to one one dividend per shareholder, so Ultimately, aren't those payments going through? And and likewise, um, couldn't Overstock have declared a large dividend or or a transaction and and forced all the short sellers to settle up, so to speak? Well, two things. I I'm not against short selling. This has I'm not against short selling. If somebody you know. The technical term for some of what I've been describing, this gaming of the settlement system, is called naked short-selling. But You know, a sea lion is not a type of lion. Naked short-selling isn't really a type of short-selling. I'm not against short-selling. And I really try to separate this from Overstock. I got involved in this. My eyes were open to it because of some things that were happening with us when I didn't And when I refuse to take part in absolute explicit invitations to take part in criminal schemes, what do you know, some weird things start happening to us. But I I separate this from Overstock. We're we're nicely profitable, we're we're more profitable than Amazon, Uh, which isn't isn't hard. But we made $88 million last year on a gap net income basis, we're doing quite well. And, but it's not about overstock. It's about, it was through this that I realized this gaming was going on. And incidentally, the, the, the system, this hub-and-spoke system is set up. People have tried to do what you described, and you can't really do it. You can't really do it. And if you start to do it... I mean, if you if you do it and it starts to work, the Department of Justice will actually indict you. And this happened to a reputable company in Washington State for manipulating the market. They were letting the naked short sellers, the hedge funds, sell non-existent stock and crack the company. And then when they did just what you said, the Do tried to put out a dividend that was non-fungible, that would sort of catch this system and sort of stop the music in the game of musical chairs, they got indicted for trying to manipulate the market and their stock. It was a real, and that's what happens when you have captured institutions. I'll I'll let you choose who to call on.
0: What would you estimate that um, seed does not know who owns their stock? What percentage would you guess? They have no clue as to who the ultimate owner. So in other words, it's unreconcilable because they've just lost track.
1: Good question. 97% of stock has been dematerialized. 3% is held in paper. And if you have paper stock, then you own your stock. And you, you still have the legal right to get your paper stock certificates, but there's a bunch of things that will be thrown up in your way if you ever try to do it. Uh, Of the 97%, how much stock is actually, uh, so 97% has been dematerialized. And what what I'm saying is there's basically a system of fractional reserve banking without a reserve requirement. And how much much extra stock has been issued is impossible to know. You try to find out, and if you try to find out, you, you can't. I mean, they know. So the SEC was simultaneously saying, this isn't going on,'t worry don't worry about it. Worry about it. We're saying, okay give us some data. No, no, we can't do that. It might That was a quote I left out actually somewhere back. but there was a quote they said, we're not going to release the data of how much extra stock there is because that would, that would uh, affect the that would reveal the trading strategies, the proprietary trading strategies of uh, some of the hedge funds. Which is kind of funny because they left out a word. The word is illegal. They left out so the failed statistics of individual firms and customers is proprietary and may reflect firms' trading strategies. Well, failed statistics means how many how much magic stock they how much imaginary stock did these hedge funds create by gaming these channels in the settlement system? They said SEC said we're not going to tell you that because it would reveal their strategies. Well, those strategies are illegal. It was the most bizarre, surreal, Kafkaesque experience trying to deal with them.
0: One more question.
1: I'm sorry, yes, I, I'm not. Go ahead, right there. So Your mention of uh, your experience in Afghanistan with the markets and women who worked in the markets there recalls a Georgetown professor sort of agrees with you that capitalism began in Spanish influence, but rather in Spanish North America, where women, in spite of diminished social standing as a consequence of Catholic theology and the role that they faced there in general, still had major roles in their markets. So I'm wondering if you could sort of explain how women in Afghanistan were able to interact with the markets you observed there. Well, quite interesting. I so I took out of my Stanford. I studied development economics at Stanford. Do I still have three minutes, or what's your thought? Yeah,
0: this is oh. the last question. Answer.
1: Okay. Uh, it, in Stanford, I studied all this technical development economics, like uh, you know, you, you folks study and know about. And I walked away from it thinking it all came down to women. It all came down. In fact, I remember a paper that was about. They do these experimental uh, these experiments where you, get, you take one village in India and you increase the income of men and you look for a change in the weight of children, which is a very good rubber meets the road measure of the well-being of a family. And you increase the income of men and you look for the, and there's no increase in the weight of children. As this economist put it, there's an increase in the weight there's an increase in alcohol in consumption of alcohol, tobacco and hookers. <laughs> I said that to Buffett once, and he said, Yeah, yeah, and the rest of it they waste. Anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, but and I shouldn't mention Buffett's a teetotaler and a very square guy, I was just kidding. But so I walked away, it's all about women, and I've spent a lot of time in the developing world. And oh, you, you take an identical village, you give money to women, and you immediately see this dramatic increase in the weight of children. Women bank their future, they bank in their children, they bank calories in their children. Uh, so the focus of WorldStock is on women, it's not exclusively women. We had 15, I got a prize from Karzai at some point, not that that's much to brag about, but we had in 2006, we were the largest private employer in Afghanistan, 1,500 people, 1,300 of them women. Uh, and I saw, I visited these villages, the women would be, you know, a family with 10 kids, the husband's going to work pay you know on a road crew making $13 a month, and he's got his two sons in school, but the woman and her eight daughters are at home every day, you know, not allowed to go out. So we started finding ways. It was very, quite difficult to build the logistics systems that we could be interacting with them. But we we dealt with hundreds or eventually 1,300 of such people. And I think, I actually think there's a national security uh, point to be made about that. We have, just to use a biological, an ugly biological metaphor, you know, we have defense uh, Immune systems, and they obviously have holes in them. Say, and a virus like Ebola comes in, we don't have a way to defend against it. I think, as liberals, we have a hole in our immune system, and that is if it ever, if a hostile ideology ever arises, disguised as a religion, but that if an authoritarian, fascistic ideology arises as a religion. Our body politics can have trouble dealing with it. We're not, we don't have the T cells or whatever to take care of that. But they have one too. And it's women. It's in the Muslim world is soup to nuts, predicated. I spent a lot of time in the Muslim world, and I've got for social reasons. I've got great friends there. My experiences is, is there's basically three groups: there's crooks, there's fanatics, and there's moderates. We're about 15-20 percent. And we back the crooks because we think they're going to fight the fanatics for us. We don't understand the fanatics and the crooks have a game going of I scratch your back, you scratch mine. There's one way to beat them, and that is to focus on the the situation of women, because it's 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 consistent with our values. And by you talk about subversion, if you want to subvert a society, and if you want to subvert the Muslim world. Uh, or at least what's ugly about the, the Muslim world, focus on the plight of women, focus on raising their income, and I think the rest will take care, to some degree, the rest will take care of itself. Thank you very much. It's been an honor.